It's uh, definitely visited our house. Uh, and not only did we get to enjoy that this week, but we got to enjoy the storehouses of snow. Uh, as you read in Job, where he says, have you ever entered them? And I think we can say definitively, yes, we have. Uh, my goodness, snow, winter came with a vengeance uh, this year. I think it's trying to outshine last year's, and it's doing a great job. Um, so thank you for coming this morning. Uh, for those of you who have been here the past four weeks, we've been going through First John, uh, different thematic approaches, different things we're trying to touch on. Uh, and Mr. Bob is not here today, which means I got free reign to do whatever I want. So that could be good or bad. We'll find out. Um, but this morning, I'd like to take a tad bit of a tangent. I don't think it is, but it may appear that way. And we have a lot to get through. And as usual, I won't get through it all. So we may have to skip through some of it. Um, but hopefully today, something sparks your interest piques your curiosity, uh, because by no means do I plan to give you the full breadth, depth, and width of anything, uh, but I wish to just hope to give you some sort of spark that makes you want to go in your own study and find out your own things. (coughs) So as we go into, hold on, let's make sure this works. (coughs) So as you can see, we're doing (laughs) agents of chaos, or chaos agents, which hopefully will make sense as we start going through. Maybe not yet. Uh, but as we've been doing each class, there's a few things you can know from First John, and there's more than the six that we're going to hit on this morning, but um, these are just some that I think John is trying to get you to really hold on to that's supposed to strengthen you as you go through your walk of faith. Uh, in First John 5.13, that you may know that you have eternal life. Next verse, 5.14, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 5.15, we know that we have the request which we have asked because he hears us, and so we have those requests from him. 5.18, we know that everyone born of God does not continue in sin. And then 19, we know that we are of God. And then in 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we've talked about these each week, and we've been hitting on them, but these are definitive truths, foundational principles that you can hold on to um, as you go through this life and as you're faced with different trials and different troubles, but you can hold these as pinnacles, um, as pillars of your faith to hold up your belief and be a firm foundation for you as you go through. And so as we get into, and we're going to go through this rather quickly because I have way too many references, um, but there's this idea of chaos, and we're going to touch hopefully on it and or define it better in just a moment, but I want you to think of things that cause chaos in your own life, things that cause chaos in the world, things that cause chaos in creation, and let's see if John mentions these at all. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I think it would be a fair statement to say the works of the devil could be considered chaotic. They don't cause good things. They decreate. They destroy God's good world. 1 John 3.10, But this is evident. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you're a child of the devil, by nature, you don't love your brother. And if you're a child of the devil, then you're apparently <clears throat> performing his works. And what are his works? Chaotic, destructive works. First John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Well, who is in the world? What is this he? Is it something good, something bad, something constructive, or something destructive? 
I think we're going to find out it's very chaotic. First John 5, 4 through 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, what are we trying to overcome? What was overcome from the beginning? As you recall in First John, he uses the phrase in the beginning ten times. Uh, which can have a nuance of meanings, one of which is strongly to pull you back to Genesis. What's been happening since the beginning? And when you see God in Genesis, he overcomes the world. And what's the world? It's this chaotic mess of destructive waters and deep darkness and formless and emptiness. And I think that's on John's mind as he's writing this. And then 1 John 5:19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This place in which we're in seems to have another ruler seems to have someone else calling the shots and dictating things, but they don't work towards our good. They don't work to build us up, but they work to tear us apart. And I think in John's mind, he was raised heavily on the Hebrew Bible, on the Old Testament scriptures. And so his way of seeing the world, his way of perceiving theology and philosophy and the understanding of God would have been firmly rooted in the Old Testament. And their way of seeing the world is vastly different from ours. And so when you think of things that cause chaos. Um, I think of the root of what you would think cause chaos. I think certain things come to mind. Um, I think for a lot of people, you picture some sort of devil image. Uh, Usually it has horns. Usually there's a pitchfork. He's usually red. And so we usually blame him. It's his fault. He's causing all the problems in the world. Uh, He's the destructive force that's ruining our lives. And then ultimately, he's coming from this place of eternal fire and brimstone and death. And that's what we want to try to avoid. I think your biblical conception of chaos agents is vastly different. Um, You don't pick up any of that in the Old Testament. Uh, You'll be surprised if you do a word search, the word hell doesn't occur anywhere in the Old Testament. Um, But what you do see is this idea of chaotic waters. Um, It is pervasive in the Old Testament scriptures. It's everywhere. Uh, This idea of pre-creation chaotic waters that's seeking to destroy what God has made. (laughs) And then believe it or not, you're going to run into dragons. Um, I know that sounds crazy, um, and if you're not familiar or have never heard that before, it can sound a little weird, and I'll give it to you. But you will find dragons in the Old Testament. Um, it's a very common theme in Near Eastern or Near Eastern ancient uh, origin stories, including Israel's theme, which hopefully we're going to touch on today. Um, and then one of the biggest ways um, that chaos occurs in your in your Bible is pure darkness, no light. And think of how what we talked about in the Gospel of John and in 1 John, what is God? God is light. He's the full opposite of darkness. And so when your biblical authors are writing, these, I think, are the things that are on their mind. This is how they were raised. And there's tons of nuances to these, lots of depth, which we're not going to get into today, but I hope you'll go on your own to discover. Um, But this is what they think of when they think of chaos, when they think of the things that are trying to destroy their world. And so where does this come from? Well, you're first introduced to it in Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the skies and the land, and the land was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And so I think by default, our materialistic point of view of origins, we think, well, wait a minute, how was there already something before he did anything? And that's when you almost have to, to take a step back out of your modern context, and you have to step into Israel's context. Because they're not living in a world where they care about the origins of matter. They're concerned about the origins of function, of form. What is the purpose of life? What is happening here? 
And when you start comparing um, Genesis to almost all of the other ancient origin stories, they have tons of similarities. Um, and that's not to say that they're pulling one from another or that Genesis cheated and it copied from other folks, but what's really happening is God is making a profound statement. Because um, there's things, uh, Enuma Elish and Epic of Gilgamesh, those are two popular ones that we have well documented from Babylonia and from Assyria that talk about the origins that they thought how everything came into being. And surprisingly, they all start with chaotic waters. They all start with this idea that things came out of this torrent of chaos. Um, and of course, they have their own versions of gods that fought one another, and, and there's battles, and they don't care about humans nearly as much. And then you have Israelite coming onto the scene, coming out of 400 years of living in Egypt, where this would have been around them all the time. And now you have Moses telling them, hey, well, our God, he doesn't struggle. He doesn't fight. Um, some of the context of that is they, some of their gods have to fight daily or yearly so that the sun will rise. Well, that doesn't happen for the Israelites because God just made it so. Uh, he conquered the chaotic waters just by speaking. And so God stands out as a huge contrast um, to the origin stories of their day. And so what you're in, being introduced and asked to understand is that the idea of biblical nothingness is this chaotic, disordered, deep, dark waters. It's not related to an absence of matter. Um, and it's really hard, at least for me, um, in our modern context, to think that way. Because that's just not how, that's not how our minds work. That's not how our culture works. And so when you start seeing these themes in the scriptures, and David just spends mountains of time um, using this imagery, is that as your life is in chaos, you know, it's these waves crashing over you. It's darkness. It's an absence of God's presence. Um, it's not a nothingness. It's not a no matter. Um, so something to keep in mind as we move forward, which is why you then get uh, scriptures such as Psalm 89.9, where it says, you rule the surging of the sea. When its waves rise, you calm them. And then Second Samuel, when David is uh, fighting his enemies, and as he has just been uh, victorious over Saul and his enemies, he says, for the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. And so the other motif you'll see is that these ideas of chaotic water, of chaos, of, of these destructive powers are linked to death. So if you're in those states, uh, you're dying or you're in the grip of death. And Sheol is just sort of a, the best way to explain it. It's, it's the grave. It's where you go when you die. It is not a connotation of modern understanding of, of hell, of lakes of fire. That's not the imagery you get. But you just get this chaotic, deep, dark nothingness in their understanding. <clears throat> and so I think it's a good question to ask. Well, okay, so if there's chaos before God does anything. He gets rid of it, right? That's what Genesis is all about. Well, sort of. Uh, if you look in Genesis 1, 20 through 23, it reads, Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea creatures, which is the word tanim, and every living creature there that moves with, with which the waters swarmed according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. This word for sea creatures is this word tanin, um, and it means sea monster, sea dragon, dragon, serpent, or crocodile. Um, I didn't see any references to crocodiles, but all the other four, um, they are referenced in your Old Testament scriptures. Um, this word is used pervasively in lots of different ways, and it's super interesting. Um, but I think it, 
At first, you kind of think, well, when you read that, you're thinking of things he made, things that are out in the water. Oh, it's probably a whale, right? Um, it's probably just some, maybe it's a shark. Maybe it's some big sea creature. But then they start using this word in the weirdest of ways. Um, Isaiah 27.1. And just before Isaiah 27.1, he's talking about the destruction of wicked people. And then he makes this statement. On that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. And does anyone want to take a guess on what that word dragon is? It's this word, tanin. It's the same word of some great creature he made in the oceans on day five or whatever. I've already messed it up. Whatever day that was, I forget. But he puts this great sea creature in the waters, but then later Isaiah is saying it's something he has to kill. It's something he has to get rid of that has to die. And then he ties it with this word Leviathan and serpent. And so all of a sudden, your, your ancient Bible uh, authors are mixing these Leviathan, serpent, and dragon imageries together. Um, this is a lifetime of study, I think. But just, you, got, just, you know, go with me on this for a moment. That there's, there's something happening here that's bigger than maybe animals that were being made that day or fish in the sea. Um, there's something powerful that's being said here. And there's the connotations, at least that I understand, and from the things that I've read, chaos wasn't removed. And we can all attest to that because we live lives here. We see chaos daily. Chaos wasn't taken out of the picture. Um, otherwise, the fall in the garden wouldn't have happened. Cain and Abel wouldn't have happened, so on and so forth. Chaos was contained, which is a di- in its own way, in its own understanding, God contained chaos in a form and then mix it with this imagery that the authors are using, that chaotic waters are this pervasive nothingness which is trying to decreate. And then this dragon, this sea creature, starts to represent this chaos energy. And let's see where else it takes us. Um, you're going to see later, you're going to see people as dragons. Uh, Ezekiel 29, 1 through 5. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster, which is this word, Tanin, that lies in the midst of the canals, that has said, my Nile is mine, and I myself have made it. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your canals cling to your scales, and I will bring you up out of the midst of your canals, and all the fish of your canals will cling to your scales. I will abandon you to the wilderness. You and all the fish of your canals, you will fall in the open field. You will not be brought together or gathered. I have given you for food to the animals of the earth and to the birds of the sky. What? <laughs> Going on. Ezekiel 32, 2. Son of man, take up a song of mourning over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You compared yourself to a young lion of the nations, yet you were like the monster in the seas. And you burst forth in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled their rivers. So what's going on here? Is Pharaoh really a scaly sea creature? Is that what's sitting on their throne? Do they have like walking, talking, uh, aquatic life that's ruling over them? Um, is he really large enough to like be butchered and feed the animals of the field? Is that the imagery we're supposed to get? Was he a big guy? Did he have a lot of meat on his bones? Um, is this just fancy symbolism? And it, it doesn't mean anything else other than it's just poetic metaphor. Um, or is God calling Pharaoh out for what he is? Is he a seed of the serpent, as we've been talking about, which has now reached its full-fledged adulthood as a dragon? 
the same chaotic dragon that you're introduced to in Genesis. And I know this can be, it's, it's, it can be a leap, but I think that's the imagery we're getting here. Because recall, as we've been trying to hit on for most of the summer and now into the fall and winter, there's a whole world we can't perceive. There's this whole thing going on outside of our own five senses that's more real than what we experience. And I think very much so when Pharaoh's being called a dragon, he's being called a dragon in the purest of its sense, in the true reality of what he is, because that's what he's chosen to become, like we'll be talking about uh, with the seeds of the snake or the seed of the woman. Um, and then that didn't even get into because I took it out for time. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is called a dragon as well um, that consumes people because um, he's so ferocious in how he treats others. So then are you to develop this idea that dragons are evil? Are they just pure, you know, anti-God and they're everything that's not good and so we need to get rid of them and hate them? Well, maybe. Psalms 148, 1 through 6 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly armies. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens. And the waters that are above the heavens, they are to praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree and it will not pass away. Sounds great. Amen. Praise the Lord. All this good stuff. Let's do it. I'm on board. I I get it. All this stuff is wonderful. I can see why it would praise the Lord. But then he doesn't stop in just six verses. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters, and all the ocean depths. What? They're supposed to be bad. Why are they praising Yahweh? And so it just starts building these nuances and this weird conception of what is this dragon? What is this sea monster? Um, and so they take on more complex identities. Uh, they're, they're not just clear cut. Um, and I think what's happening is when we, we saw in Genesis, they were part of God's good world. He said it was good when they were made. Um, yet they seem to envelop this idea that they are the epitome of chaos that God ordered. So God took what was there before, this chaotic, whatever you want to call it, realm existence. He places it in this thing, this sea monster, and he contains it into the seas. Um, and there's lots of, uh, lots of people who will spend time talking about this is a dominant reason why Israel were not seafaring people. Um, they were afraid of the seas to some degree, and they didn't like to venture out into them uh, for things like this. Uh, but you think, so, and you have to, this is how I make sense of it in my head and some of the things that I was reading. So you think, if, if chaos by nature is chaotic, it wants to destroy, just because that's what it is, then by, if it's nature, it's chaotic, then by fulfilling its role, its purpose, it's fulfilling God's plan. Does that make sense? So think of it this way. The best analogy I have is um, if you were to go out into the ocean and you're scuba diving and a shark decides that you look like a nice tasty snack and he comes up and he bites you, is the shark evil? No. The shark is just doing what the sharks do. He bit you because he was hungry. He didn't have ill intention for you. He didn't seek your destruction. He wasn't trying to hurt you or cause pain to you. He was hungry. And I think similar um, is what's being shown in this dragon. This dragon, by its default, is chaotic. That's what it does. It doesn't know anything else. And the whole point of Genesis 1 is that God's order became the dominant environment in which we live and not this chaos. But the chaos wasn't removed. 
and chaos was tamed. And then that's when you get Eve and you get Cain. You need to rule over it. It's still there, but you need to dominate it. <clears throat> then you get another one. Psalm seventy-four, ten through 11. How long, God, will the enemy taunt you? Shall the enemy treat your name disrespectfully forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Extend it from your chest and destroy them. And he's going to go on in the next verses to define what his enemy is. Is it a rival nation? Is it a dishonest ruler? Is it sinful people? No, but it's the very forces of chaos which God, uh, which seek to destroy God's good world. Seventy-four, twelve through 17. Yet God is my king from long ago who performs acts of salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters and the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have created summer and winter. What is the ultimate... What is the thing that's trying to destroy God's world? It's chaos. What is the biggest rival of God's good world? It's chaos. And as we see, people can be those entities. People can be the dragons. But as Paul will say, our, our enemy is not one another, but it's the principalities, it's the forces, it's the dark things of this world that are trying to manipulate it for bad and are trying to tear it apart. And so God, and so in this psalmist is saying, the thing that you conquered, the thing that is most adversarial to us in your creation, not to God, but to what he's made and put in it, is this decreation force that's trying to destroy us. And so what does this have to do with the serpent? Uh, we've talked about this in, in times past with linking Genesis 1-4 through 4 with 1 John. And so how do you tie the serpent into this? And interestingly, uh, similar to what Isaiah was doing in 27, where he ties Leviathan, serpent, and the dragon together, Exodus 7 uh, also ties in the dragon and the serpent in some odd ways. Uh, Exodus 7, 8 through 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, uh, then you shall say to Aaron. And uh, just for a quick context, this is when Moses and Aaron uh, go to Pharaoh, and they're trying to um, convince him to let the people go. And so this is the first thing that they do as they approach. And so say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, so that it may turn into a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and so they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down, before Pharaoh and his servants, and it turned into a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they too, the soothsayer priests of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts, for each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. And you want to guess what word is used for all three serpents, the original Hebrew word? It's this word tanin. I don't know about you, but that really threw me for a loop. (laughs) In the the picture that I grew up with as a kid, it was the staff went down, turned into a snake. It was a slithering snake on its belly. But your Hebrew authors are tying you to this word, tanin, this dragon thing. And so, but then two verses later, go to Pharaoh in the morning, just as he is going out to the water and position yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. What word is used here? It's not tanin. It's the word nahash, which is the word for snake, which is the exact same word used in Genesis 3 to define what the serpent is. Um, and without long, lengthy time, which we don't have, um, did Moses make a sea monster or did he make a snake? Why can't it be both? <laughs> both? Both were made. 
the snake is a tanin. The snake is a sea monster. The snake was this dragon idea. And what I think the biblical authors are getting you to look at is that the serpent from Genesis chose his allegiance and he sided with chaos and decreation. Thus, he clothes himself with the persona of the sea monster and becomes an adversary to God's good created world. If you remember, this, the serpent in the garden was not... He was made by God. Everything that was made was called good. The serpent made a choice. The serpent chose. He said he saw this dragon thing in the sea. He saw this chaos, and he wanted to do that. He wanted to be part of that. And so the serpent is not the dragon directly, but he becomes an agent of chaos by giving up his intended station, whatever that was, uh, to act and live like a dragon. Because we're told the the serpent was the most cunning. That's not a negative connotation. He was wise. He was incredibly intelligent, smart, what have you. Um, But yet he gave that up because for some reason, um, his misconception of what he wanted in God's good world was to dominate it, was to rule it, and by doing that, he wanted to tear it apart. And so he takes on the persona and the nature of this chaotic dragon. Uh, I didn't want to skip this one because I think it's great. Uh, Job. Job is a fantastic story. Uh, Lots of people have read great things about it. I would highly encourage you to look into that. Um, But just a quick backstory if you're not familiar. Uh, as As you come into the beginning of Job, you're put into the scene of God's divine counsel. Um, where he's gathered the, the sons of God and the adversary is there. And just word of caution, um, Satan is not a name. It's a, it's a description. It's an adversary or um, an accuser. So I don't know why that matters, but it, I feel like it does. So as you're reading through, just be aware of that. Um, but they're in, this, they're in this group, and God says, well, what have you been doing? Um, he says, I've been prowling around on the earth. Uh, seemingly as a dragon, lurking and finding things in which he can destroy and decreate. And so then God says, well, God puts Job in front of him. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And I, you can only imagine if Job ever found that out, be like, oh, God, why'd you do that? <laughs> that was really hard. Um, but essentially Satan, what he says is, his hypothesis is that Job only loves God because of the blessings he's given him. Not because Job cares about God or Job wants to align with him, but only because Job has been richly blessed by God, and that's the only reason he loves him. And so God gives everything over to Job, or sorry, God gives everything over to uh, the adversary to destroy Job's life, except he can't take his life. And so what happens? Job's life is thrown into chaos. His kids die, his stuff is looted, and his health is diminished to the point of death. Um, I mean any facet you can think of, the dragon was unleashed into his life and chaos just dominated. And Job is just unbelievably crushed. Um, He says things like, let the day perish on which I was born. He wished he had never existed. Uh, And then he even even says, am I the sea or the sea monster? Am I the dragon that you set a guard over me? He's saying, am I the thing that needs to be destroyed? Why are you tearing me down and trying to get rid of me? Am I the chaos? You know, no. What is happening? Uh, he said, and then if he were to pat him being God, if God were to pass by me being Job, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. And what he's getting at in chapter 9 there is if God was right in front of me, I wouldn't be able to see him because I don't know who he is anymore. 
He's not the God that I thought he was. He's not the God that removes chaos, but he's apparently the God that allows it. And he's having this relationship uh, struggle with Yahweh and trying to understand what's going on. He's been faithful seemingly most of his life, uh, but God seems to have abandoned him is what's happening in his mind. Uh, and then 29, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Uh, Job's in mourning. He had a rich um, relationship with Yahweh that he cherished, that, he, that fueled his life. And now he's in a point where he's like, I don't know where he is. He's gone. He's abandoned me. And Job is just in the pits of despair, um, just hurting immensely. Because Job knows that God can crush the chaos which plagues him. He is utterly familiar with uh, the, the scriptures that they would have had up to that point. Um, he, he knows his, his origin stories. He knows what God did in Genesis, how he crushed chaos. And so he says, uh, with his power being God, he quieted the sea. And he put his understanding, uh, and by his understanding, he shattered Rahab, which is another way of referencing the sea monster. And by his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing Nahash, the fleeing serpent. Behold, there are the fringes. These are just the fringes of his ways. And how faint a word we hear of him by his mighty thunder. Who can understand? So he's, in Job's mind, God crushing uh, the dragon. God destroying the serpent is just like the fringes of what he can do. It's just the beginning of his power. And so that's why he's in this state of, where are you? I know you can do this without even a thought, but it's happening to me right now, and the dragon's everywhere. And he's, but, you know, why is he not crushing the serpents and the sea monsters in his life? And Job begins to develop this theme that God's unjust. Um, God doesn't stay true to his word. He doesn't do the things he's promised, and so Job's, Job's relationship is unraveling. And God then eventually answers him uh, by displaying his awesome creation power. Uh, which is the exact force which destroys and eradicates the agents of chaos. Um, I know as a kid, I was always confused. Like, I feel like Job, his life is destroyed, he's struggling, he's calling out to God, and then God just answers him talking about creation. <laughs> what? How does that answer his question? Uh, but I think with this idea of the dragon, um, it, it makes perfect sense because the dragon is decreation. And so how does God show his ultimate power? By reminding him of his powerful creation that the things that you see in the world, the things that were made and the things that we don't see is the testimony, is the proof that defines how God destroyed and and, and tamed uh, this chaos. And then you get these really weird descriptions, uh, Job 40 and 41, about these two creatures, uh, the behemoth and the Leviathan. And God goes into incredible detail about the Leviathan in Job 41. Um, He says things like, can you drag him out with a fish hook? Uh, and think back to Pharaoh. Uh, that's exactly what he said he's going to do to him, is drag him out, because he is a dragon. Um, and then he goes on to say, if you lay your hand on him, you'll never do it again, because uh, there's going to be bad consequences. He, tell, he says this Leviathan is mighty, has mighty strength, double armor, strong scales, sneezes light. His mouth is burning torches, flames from his mouth. When he rises, the gods are afraid. The sword, spear, dart, or javelin can't prevail against him. What are we talking about here? Uh, I know when I was when I was younger, I was like, I was just like a dinosaur. Like, what is this thing? What's going on? Because um, what's being described here is just something terrifying, uh, something huge, immense. I mean, even in our modern context, uh, it sounds exactly like a dragon. Uh, scales, fiery breath, massive. You can't take it down. 
So what kind of creature is this? What's being described here? And then the very last verse, uh, I think, is when he takes it and he makes an obvious connection, at least it was for me. He says, he is the king over all the sons of pride. Well, you were just defining what I thought was an animal, a creature, and now he's the king of all the sons of pride? (laughs) But then think about that for a moment. Um, You probably read, and I think... uh, uh, I know s- several commentators have made this comment that you know pride comes before the fall. You've probably heard that saying, and one of the the main um, one of the main reasons why Eve was tempted, at least th- what what they'll propose is that it was pride, um, and it starts to make sense when you think about it. So any of us, when we choose to live outside of God's um, wisdom, outside of His knowledge, we're being prideful because we're saying, God, Your way is not good enough for me. Um, I don't want to follow your way. I'll make my own because I'm smarter than you. I'm more capable than you. And so pride seems to be pervasive in every, um, in, in every life that lives opposite of God's good world. And so, and so I think what's happening here, and um, I think there's lots of things that could be going on, but I think one of them is we're be giving a description of the dragon, of this chaotic force that we can't see, but yet that Pharaoh is, um, yet that Nebuchadnezzar is. Um, and you'll also see it tied to Babylon as a nation is also this thing, this massive force. And if you can, you know, just think of a, think of our own history. I mean, I like to watch World War II movies and you think, you know, Nazi Germany, they were a dragon. Um, and Rome was a dragon. I mean, Rome even is described in a lot of their own writings as as being this ferocious dragon. I mean, it's it's all throughout human history. It's everywhere. And I think what's going on here, why he responds this way to Job, is God saying, this this chaotic force that you think is destroying your life, I not only know it in great detail, but I can conquer it. I can take it down. And that's when Isaiah 27 comes back in. God is going to take this thing out permanently one day um and then quickly we're gonna jonah jonah's fascinating um because jonah not only takes this idea of chaotic waters that he's drowning in um inside of this sea monster under the ocean i mean this is great uh but jonah says things like i called for help from the depth of sheol um, from the very depths of these chaotic waters for you threw me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the current flowed around me all your breakers and waves passed over me. I mean, Jonah's living in this uh, pre-creation chaotic world of destruction, death, and chaos. And this is not only what he's metaphorically referring to, but what he's very literally in because he's in the depths of the sea. And he says, The water encompassed me to the point of death. The deep flowed around me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I mean, he's full in this imagery of I'm in the worst place I can be. Um, and if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, Jonah's kind of a jerk. Um, he's very self-centered and what you see happening is um, the word tanin is not in Jonah so I'll I'll make that clear Uh, there's no reference to the serpent uh, the fish, we don't know what it was if it was a whale, whatever, it's just called a fish but what you see in the pattern of Jonah is Jonah is his own dragon he is his own worst nightmare because what he does all throughout Jonah is opposes God every step of the way. Um, and there's great little subtleties in there about Jonah trying to flee and go to his own idea of Eden. Uh, and there's lots of connotations to Genesis, which is fun. Do you have your hand, Tony?
Sure. So Tony's point is that uh, there's probably a mix of um, embellishment, probably uh, stretching the, stretching it a little bit more to make it seem uh, like the idea of the waters is more than what it really is. And, and that's, that's certainly an opinion. Um, I think for, at least in my own, uh, at least one of the phrases I like to is uh, C.S. Lewis. He talks about a lot when, if you don't like what I just said, just drop it and let it go. Um, and I think, and a lot of, and we're going to connect this to uh, John in just a second, but um, I think a lot of this is confusing. A lot of this is, uh, it's interesting, but Yeah, so the comment is that it's more imagery, it's more metaphor, it's less literal. Um, and I think to some degree, yes, and, uh, but at least at least what I've discovered so far, I think some degree, uh, no. Uh, just because I think a lot of the imagery we get isn't necessarily imagery. I think this is a form of reality that's happening beyond our senses. you know. Um, and there's a lot of connections with the heavenly realm that we don't understand. Um, that we don't have a full picture of because we're not given it. But, but yeah, I, I agree. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not touting anything as definitive. Um, I think there's lots of room for interpretation on certain different things, um, and I'm no expert by any means. Um, so by all means, yeah, if, if this is completely unhelpful, drop it. Uh, you, it, does, it. You don't need to carry it with you. Um, I'm not teaching anything as... I, I'm not teaching. Um, I think I'm just giving things that have, that have helped me um, in my own my own discovery, in my own walk, and I think there are some connections with, you know, children of the devil, and this idea of these chaotic, horrible things which are trying to destroy our world, um, and there is a connection there because we can very much be the seed of the snake, um, and I think chaos is part of that imagery um, that as you are the children of the devil, you're trying to destroy what God has made, um, and we're going to get there in just one second. We can get to the end, and then I I don't mind talking to you about it later too. Um, so, but the fascinating thing on the Jonah one is that um, Jesus refers to the thing which swallowed Jonah as a sea monster um, in 1240. Um, but then I think when you then go through Jesus' own sayings, when he references snakes, he references vipers, um, it gives a different connotation. And then we'll skip to Luke 1019, where he says, Behold, I have given you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. And in just the verse prior, in 18, he talks about, I saw Satan fall from heaven um, as a lightning flash. So there's, there's this connection, I think, that he's carrying over from the Old Testament imagery and from their, their, their understanding of what's happening and these dark forces that are moving about, um, that the snake then carries less literal reference to you can have authority over things crawling on the ground and more authority to you have authority over 
um, the demonic powerful forces, which was the you know power behind the snake in the garden, and you can rule over that, just like Cain was told to rule over the sin in his life. Um, and then I thought interesting when the in the Lord's prayer when it talks, uh, you know, protect us from the evil one. Well, what is that? And and connotations if I'm the seed of the snake, can that be me? Um, and I think as in Jonah we see he's his own worst enemy. We need to also have some meditations in our own life and some honesty with God is what are the motives that fuel me? What are the values that move me? Am I decreating what God has done or am I trying to help uh, in his good world to motivate it? So with that imagery, um, and I'm not going to go into this because Revelation so confuses me, but what you see is in the end of Revelation, you get this picture of a new heaven and a new earth. Um, I saw it referenced Genesis 2.0, but, uh, because when you get there, there's no more sea. It specifically mentions that there will be no sea. There's no darkness. And so if you don't have sea, you don't have these agents of chaos anymore. They're gone. Um, And there's no darkness because God is the light. And I think that imagery plays directly off of, uh, you know, Genesis, off of the Old Testament, that we're looking forward to this time when we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Uh, Because since there's no, since it's only light, the things of the darkness have nowhere to hide. Uh, Jesus talks about things being exposed to the light, and yet everything will be exposed to the light. Um, and then Revelation 21.5, God says, I'm making all things new. And he goes on to say, there's no more death, there's no more tears, there's no more mourning, there's no more pain, uh, there's no more agents of chaos. They're gone. And so, so what? So again, John's mind, saturated in the Old Testament. Um, I think he had a, a similar understanding of, of this chaotic forces trying to destroy the world. And he gives you the secret of how to master it. And I think that's the whole point of what John's doing. He says, love one another as Jesus loves you. And easy thing to say, not as easy to do. And I think that's the epitome of what John is getting at, that as you do that, you are a force of good in the world. Um, you, As we talked about before, when you have right relationships one with your brother, you image God into the world. You are his representatives. And the, you know, starting from Abraham and working through the Israelites, they were to be a blessing to the nations. They were to be priests um, and ambassadors of God to the world. And that's what we do as we have right relations one with another, as we have love one for another. And by doing that, you defeat, I think, in the story of Cain, why John mentions Cain. Because as you love one another and you love your brother, uh, you are not giving in to sin. You are actually ruling over it as you were originally meant to do. And so that's the secret. And then you aren't a dragon if you do that. Um, and so by this, you overcome the world. And then just like Moses, when he throws the tanin down, he picks it back up. He's a snake handler, but in a good way. Because um, he, he's doing it in the power and image of God. And so I think the presence of you know chaos and dragons in our lives doesn't show that God's unjust, but it's a reminder that God is seeking those who will rule and subdue the beast. Um, who will, you know, again, the opposite of Cain, that you will overcome uh, the, the powers in your life that are trying to pull you away from him. And so we need to trust and believe that God can and will uh, defeat the chaos monster. So let's not be like Cain who gave in, but let's love our brother as Christ does. And by doing so, we heat burning coals uh, upon our enemy or upon the dragon's head. Uh, so we're almost out of time. Um, yeah, any questions, comments, concerns? No? Peace cake. Yeah. 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 So loving one another, it's, it's, it's difficult for me. I know, um, there's, I know we all have our own things we're bringing into, into relationships, into the world. And sometimes it's really hard to let go of 
baggage, preconceived notions. Um, I know I used to have a tendency to assume the worst in people, but then you realize most people aren't that bad. <laughs> and as you get to know them and as you work on relationships one to another, you realize they're just like you, um, trying to strive and do our best. Um, and so hopefully we can develop a community of love and relationship one to another uh, as we move forward. So thank you for your time, and we'll get ready for worship.